Hey, this is Dave Pryor. You're about to watch and or listen to an interview with my friend Jesse Fuel about his new book, Untapped Agility, which I've been covering with little labels and tags. So, hope you enjoy it. Prior, welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. We're doing a video podcast because Jesse's here. Jesse, say hi. Woohoo! And I took a shower, so that's why we're doing video. And we're going to talk about Jesse's new book, Untapped Agility, which you can see I have covered with lots of post-its. I'm I'm not done yet, but I've known Jesse for a long time, and what I just said to him was, dude, I am legitimately impressed. This book is pretty awesome, and he's answering questions I get asked in every single class. So Oh, coming from you, man, that, that means a lot because um, I know that because uh, you paid me. <laughs> I know you've traveled the world and talked to a lot of a lot of people. So uh, I appreciate that vote of confidence. Um, well, thank you. So so what's the book about? Untapped Agility, Seven Leadership Moves to Transform Your Transformation. It's about that. It's about getting stuck on this journey and trying to figure out a way past it. Because everybody on this path to more collaboration, faster delivery, better quality, they run into barriers. Right? There's always an initial boost of right. progress, of momentum. And then you get so far, you run into barriers. And it turns out there's a lot of established research about what those barriers are. It's predictable. It's knowable. The question is, what's the rebound? And... With uh, the people that I talked to and the materials that I looked at, a pattern started to emerge, and that is that the rebound past your barrier is leaning against the logic that got you there in the first place. So whatever you did to huh. get your initial agile momentum, like extolling the virtues of Scrum or extolling the virtues of continuous delivery, it's only going to take you so far before you're going to start running into resistance. Yeah. And it's time to start. It's, and at that point, it's time to start rethinking your strategy and stop selling your value proposition and start aligning to the value proposition that your leaders want. So that's uh, that's just one example. Stop well, selling. On, let, let's so let's. I want to stay with that because that right. is one of the questions I get asked a lot. All right. So just to create a scenario here, company says I read a book over the weekend. We're going to switch to agile. Go make an agile team. Guy goes, puts everybody through scrum training, start doing it. They're like, okay, how many teams have been trained? What's their velocity? And like, everybody's marching along, building their little, you know, wooden airplane, waiting for the new British soldiers to come in and bring them more supplies. Right, right, right. And they all going through the motions. And then everyone's like, We're, nothing's happening here. We're just faking it. And you're saying align it to what management wants, but they, what ah. do they want? Faster. They want water. They want fast, predictable waterfall. And Just fat-free fat. Um, unless they don't. Uh, right. And what I have found is that if you're if you have a change, a transformation champion, an agile champion, some senior executive who says, um, "Let's go be like Spotify," because I read that cool article that said the Spotify model is everyone do the Spotify. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Even though we have nothing to do with Spotify dance. Yeah. And and even though we're in, I don't know, maybe in an industrial sector and have nothing to do with streaming media, let's go copy the business operating system for a streaming media company. 
Yeah. So I tend to, I tend to go back and say, why are you doing this from a senior leadership perspective? And don't tell me because it's cool. That is not a legitimate um, executive legacy to say, I came in and I made everything cool. Mm, No. What is the problem you are trying to solve? And then usually yeah. It starts to be a productive conversation when I show them the research-driven outcomes, business outcomes that Agile has been proven to drive, like faster time to market, improved productivity, better quality, more better morale and employee retention. And I tell them, here are the 10 to 12 statistically proven business outcomes. You get to pick three. But hold on just for a second on that one point. So I, there's two things I want to add in. So the Spotify thing, you just kind of like zipped past this point, which for me in the book was a major point that you made, which was everybody wants to go copy the thing that worked for somebody else. But it's like, hey, those pants look great on that model. I'm going to put on those pants and they don't fit. That You didn't yes. say that in the book, but that's basically what happens. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, so, yeah. So um, that we jumped from chapter one, yeah. which is find your why, stop selling, start aligning to the true why, right. to I believe it's chapter three or four, which is throw the textbook away. Okay. Throw the agile textbook away. Um, it, it was great to get started. It got you a boost. You did a little yeah. pilot team, and you done you did your retrospectives and your daily standups and. You got your automated unit test. That's great. And it's only going to get you so far right? It, until you start uh, throwing the textbook away and discovering your own path. Stop your mimicking. Own path yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's an important point. But the thing that I you just mentioned, you're going to, and I'm challenging it, you're going to go to these executives and, and show them this studies or whatever. But you're basically like hurling solutions in front of them saying, which cookie do you want? Like, I want one of those, two of those, three of those, and I'll put them in a box. Right? Yeah. Yeah, well, so um, I'm do they know uh, with the question, do they know their problem? That's the thing. Do these answers help us out what's actually broken? Uh, it, it usually does. Because what I have found is that senior leaders um, who are ultimately accountable for whether or not the organization is performing, they um, they they're either, uh, they either n- know and can name or they know inside, but they need help putting it to a name. And so I'll give you an example. I was talking to one government contractor. I, I'm based outside of Washington, DC. And, and one government contractor pulled me in down the street and said, Jesse, uh, we need to go agile. And I said, mm, okay, that's, that's good. Make so it happen. Tell me why. <laughs> and so, well, because, um, you know, because we have to. Okay. Yeah, I agree. You kind of have to. Um, how will you know that you're successful? Well, um, when we're as good as our competitors. Aha. So the driving force, the reason I came into the office today is because you're feeling a competitive threat. Tell me, how do you differentiate yourself from your competitors? Uh, and why, well, do you just, why do you only want to be as good as they are? Why don't you want to be better? Yeah. And how would you differentiate to where you could be better than in this? And so then I started saying, well, um, it's really about price. Okay. Well, what drives your bottom line? Uh, it's throughput, productivity, do more with less. Okay. Now we're getting somewhere because now that means we probably want to focus on agile methods that are around um, maximizing throughput and productivity. Lean thinking has been around for half a century. 
as opposed to emphasizing a lot of kumbaya, touchy-feely, employee morale and retention kind of stuff, um, which is a you totally- with your feelings. <laughs> it was feelings, right? But that's what Tony Shea was prioritizing over at Zappos, and it made him a business legend before he right. passed too soon. But that's not what that's not what um, the driving force for a different organization would be. And yeah. it's okay to have different driving passions and motivators. It's just that I find a lot of senior leaders have difficulty putting a name to it. And, and they get really excited when you help them discover the name of their passion and the name of their, the thing that's driving them. Yeah. It almost, I guess in some ways, and I don't know why this is going on in my head today, but I'm thinking about guitar players. It's like somebody can go out and learn how to play like all Eddie Van Halen solos, just like Eddie Van Halen. They're still not Eddie Van Halen. Right, they're not necessarily going to get the gig. They're not going to be able to write the next song that's like a Van Halen song, because all they've been able to do is copy, and they have right. to find their own voice, their own sound. And every company could could mimic to a point, and there are practices that are going to help and hurt, but they have to find their own way. Right. So, like, are you uh, like which Eddie Van Halen do you want to be? And this Dave, one of my favorite things. I mean, do you want to be? Do you want to be? Uh, so I'll get to my favorite thing. Do you want to be Pretty Woman, Eddie Van Halen, or do you want to be You Really Got Me, Pretty uh, Eddie Van Halen? Which one do you want to be? Because they're not the same vibe. Likewise, right. um, which Jeff Bridges do you want to be? Oh, look at you busting out the Jeff Bridges. All right, let's go there. Right? Yeah. Because if you're you going to be, be like, rooster, because <laughs> I know this is one dude? of your things. Yeah. You I haven't brought that in a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have to find uh, that picture. It's not enough just to be like somebody else until you know what it is that inspires you and uh, about that particular character. Um, uh, I'm, I'm partial to Starman. Not a lot of people remember Starman. Starman. Because it sucked. <laughs> uh, whatever I, yeah. I don't mean to be judgmental well, we'll yeah we'll talk about what what amused me about starman it was <laughs> it was the annoying kid that's what that's what amused me okay um anyway um so yeah you got to know your why and agile agile methods uh, is an entire um it's an it's an entire uh epic trilogy of different stories and different character sketches Right. And so you can't just say, um, I want all of it, um, because that's not, that's not leadership. You, well, okay. I, I mean, guess the to, thing I'm wondering is, do you, you have to teach them new questions? Yes, my friend, I mean, it's called business coaching. Well, but yeah, but to get to their why, like, you can say, why do you want it? They're like, because I, I want it. I mean, that's like well, yeah. asking then, a kid uh, if the pain in their stomach is like pain or hunger. They don't know how to describe it. Which is, which is part of how I help. I help okay. by asking questions like, what would success look like? If you uh, fast forward a year from now and you're about to be promoted, uh, what, is the, what, is the, what is the thing that your boss is citing is the reason why you were the best person to highlight for this promotion? Um, okay. what, what, is he get, what results is he gonna be bragging about for choosing you to be the next senior leader. And, and what's gonna come out is of that conversation is usually the, the vision of my self image at my best, 
And so a lot of people say that it's because I was able to get more consistency in the organization. And then I'm like, mm, really? You want you really wake up at three o'clock in the morning and like, God, I want consistency in my organization. Yeah, no, no, no. We've we've talked about that, right? Consistency is the junk food of management. Um, It's really about wanting predictability and repeatability. And then when I say those words, they get, oh yeah, that's right. That's what I want. I want repeatability and predictability. I want, I want to be able to take something good and replicate it over and over again. Like Like Spotify, like scaling agile. So a lot, that's okay. another thing that drives me crazy is scaling agile is, is usually a conflation of two completely different concerns. One is spreading agility from one successful small team over to a completely unrelated other successful small team. Right. That's spreading it as opposed to building the Saab Griffin strike fighter using a scrum of scrums of 50 teams okay. with large scale development. Those are two different things. So, um, and uh, leaders, just like any other professional, they need help teasing out the noise because there's always just so much noise going on in day-to-day work. Yeah, I want to. I want to. For the folks that didn't catch the little drop that you just did there for the sob thing, that's from JJ's book, right? I guess it's Jeff's book technically, but it's really JJ's book. Well, I know about it from the uh, the case study on Scrum Inc.'s website that then popped is, it's in the book too. It's in the book too. The, the last book too. Okay. Sorry, I felt like we should call that out in case people weren't sure what you were talking about. Yes, um, the Saab Griffin Strike Fighter is the most um, financially effective and fin- efficient um, weapon system developed in the West in a long time. Yeah, it's a really compelling case story. Go check it out. So when they're switching to to a scaling thing, that that often to me feels like they're just grasping at straws. Like I, I see, I just talked to somebody last week. They got like a 20 person company and some consultant came in and tried to get him to do safe. Yeah. Because he's, because he's, he's, <laughs> that's what they know. That's what like, I know. Why 20 people need to scale it agile. Uh, so I got another fun acronym for everybody. Um, Dave, have you heard of the acronym WYSIWYG? Yeah. That's old what? school, man. Yeah. Old school. What you see is what you get. Here's a new acronym for all of you, ladies and gentlemen, Willie Wick. Not WYSIWYG, Willie Wick. What I like is what I know. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so if I see a project management problem, ping, here comes Scrum. Because that's what I know. That's yeah. right. Because uh, I'm a certified scrummer or I'm a certified safer. So um, what you need more, um, you need more uh, teamwork and collaboration. Well, let's install three layers of bureaucracy called my agile framework here, because I know it. Right. So uh and, and I'm not digging safe. I'm just digging on uh, the people that implement it poorly. Um, but even though we're mocking them, it is, <laughs> it's understandable that somebody who's trying to find a way to improve things at their company is going to look to whatever case study they read in last month's HBR and be like, I'm going to try that. And maybe that'll work because there's nothing else for them to try. Like they don't know where to look to find the other things. And so they learn to do the thing somebody else is doing and it doesn't really fit right. It's the wrong pants. Which is why I wrote the book because the book is intended to tell people, listen, you don't just have, not only um, is it, uh, is it not the only option, but it's probably not a good idea to try to copy paste your way to high performance. Okay. And, and, and so I think it's just a message that, um, that, 
needs to be told more often. Uh, I mean, you and I are, preach common sense like this. You can't copy paste your way to high performance. Right. But, but I don't think it's a message that is heard loud enough, often enough, um, or nearly as much as, as could be. So what, how do you make the distinction between something that's more like a kata instead of me just copying and pasting a, like an ah. entire behavior? Because there are things, whether you are practicing agile or learning to play a sport or an instrument or whatever, there's things that most people would say, do this, it's going to build a skill that you will be able to use for other things. And it's not you saying, this is the end state. It's just a ritual that, yeah. that builds up ability. It's the, the fundamental difference is how do you define success? Do you define sex success as, uh, <laughs> do you define success as, uh, the perfect compliance with somebody else's standard or do you define success as growing and learning enough from somebody's method into one of your own? So as a piano player, you're going to learn your scales and then right. you're going to learn your etudes and then you're going to learn uh, your preludes. But eventually the greatest musician, the greatest p comp uh, piano players in the world uh, are are not graded so much on how perfectly they comply with the sheet music, but how well they're able to Take bring it to life in its yeah. own form. And so the difference between uh, a kata and a copy paste is not what you're doing, but why you think the kata is valuable. Is it valuable because okay. if I do this perfectly, then I am good, or yeah. I'm going to do this as best I can so that I suck less on my journey to being my best self. Okay. All right. That makes sense. And it kind of goes, I wanted to, to go into the scrum butt thing a little bit. Yes. Um, Cause you got a whole section on that. And I started thinking about, so I'm not sure if this is at odds with what you were trying to get across or not. So I want to check in with you on it. Um, I, you know, in, in the scrum guide, Schwaber says you do this or you don't. I always tell people, you know, you, scrum is like smoking crack. You smoke <laughs> crack or you don't. You can't be like, I kind of smoke crack. And Schwaber would say you do scrum or you don't do scrum. And I feel like you can do a little bit. It's okay. It's better than nothing. And, yeah. you know, you do scrum, but. And so to me, it's okay to do parts if you're doing it with intention. And the idea is that like, you know, I'm, let's say I'm doing finger exercises, right, on my guitar or whatever. Um, I just want to do them first. I'm going to do them really sloppy, and then I'm going to try to get better at them. Then I'm going to learn other stuff. It's just when we kind of do them sloppy, and then I did them. Sloppy's okay. Sloppy's not okay. It can be an interim step, right? I mean, do you do you agree with that? That scrum butt can be a step on the path as opposed to this is good enough. Uh, yes, and. I believe that both realities happen. It is true that uh, you suck before you don't suck and all growth and all learning. I mean, it's part of the human journey. You have to do things poorly before you do them well. So I, I am, I'm hypersensitive to the critics that say that if, the, if you're, you're doing scrum, but 
you're not delivering every single day in a continuous deployment because okay, uh, that's my interpretation yeah. of it, right? Um, yeah, you're kind of judgy. Somebody else is kind of doing the best they can with what they got. Right. And it's also true that some people will dabble with their finger tapping uh, or with their piano playing. And after dabbling, they realize, you know what? Um, this is really hard. I didn't I sign like up it. to do hard things. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is good enough for me. So that is an interesting moral question that I don't think it's treated with enough uh, philosophical rigor. So when Ken says, and, and a lot of the other people, so the grand high priests of Scrum say, either you are doing Scrum or you are a compromise of moral integrity. Well, maybe it's a compromise of moral integrity or maybe their half Scrum is, uh, represents a 25% improvement. Yeah. And they could have a two to four X improvement, a la Jeff and his book. But you know what? We choose not to because we choose good enough. Is that moral compromise or is that the right of every team and every leader to, uh, to make that call? It's yeah. a legitimate question. And, you know, um, economic Darwinianism would say, um, well, go ahead, choose your 25% half scrum improvement, be content being mediocre now that you're not completely horrible because right. you're going to get beat out in the market eventually. Well, you know, maybe that's their prerogative. And uh, I'm, I'm a little bit less concerned about the half scrum that people see um, out in the real world um, because I find that more often than not, it's not because of moral compromise. And even if it was, maybe that's not my place to judge them for. Well, it's still better than what they had before. I just, I feel like a lot of organizations, I mean, the parallel would be instead of I want to go agile, I want to learn to play violin. Why? Because I'm going to be like, it's Zach Perlman. Like, mm -hmm. no, you're not. Because <laughs> you didn't spend all that time, right? But they're still going to be judging themselves and other people will be judging them on that. And if they play like some sloppy fifth grader, do they get satisfaction? Is that enough? Is it, I mean, is it music for them? And I guess that where does that, where's the value come from? What is the end state you're looking for? Is it about agility or any kind of incremental improvement? So here's a word for all of you who call yourselves agile coaches. Um, how much of this is your agenda versus your Good. client agenda? Yeah. How much of this is I want everyone to do the scrum I think should be done because that's what I believe as opposed to I'm here to help them be their own version of whatever this is. And uh, I think um, when you're knowledgeable and passionate, sometimes it's difficult to let go of what you know and what you believe in order to give the space for other people to find their own place. Yeah. I mean, I, I am a victim. Like I always say that the reason that I, I'm not an agile coach anymore is because <clears throat> I can only watch people do stuff wrong so many times before I'm just like, stop it. Just do it this way. Like, I just can't handle it. Like the Bob Newhart skit. <laughs> I just, yeah, I lose it. it. And yeah. And I mean, that's a limitation that I have. Like if I was a really good coach, I would just let them find their own wondrous path. But, and, but. and, and, and so, and, and that's the difference I think with, um, with a, a, a speaker, presenter, trainer, uh, you're in the business of 
of, of delivering inspiring ideas. You're, you're in the business of opening up I, people's ideas to possibilities that they did not uh, previously know were, were available. That doesn't mean that you're ultimately accountable for what they do with it. And those are two different roles in yeah. the journey. And you can be the guide. So you could be the Obi-Wan that introduces Luke to the force, but you don't have to be the Yoda that sure. helps him master it. Yeah, that's good. I'm very happy to be the one and not the other. Hmm. Um, yes, you have a nice. <laughs> we're going to have to stick with that, I think. That's, that, that's good. Um, so there was something that you mentioned that was called out for you about, about the anniversary. I'm switching gears for a second, but um, something that Seema noticed. Well, okay. So Seema's my wife, and and I uh, was talking about uh, the book and, and and how it's being well-received leading up to the uh, the 20th anniversary of the Agile movement. And, you know, I wonder if there was a way to kind of tie it in and she made this observation. We'll say, isn't that the entire Agile movement? I said, well, what, what, what? Well, like, it strikes me as the real boost to the technology industry were, were things like extreme programming, Scrum, um, uh, and feature-driven development, and, and Crystal, and Evo, and all of those methods and framework. And that boost went... Right viral it generated real material results and yeah. here we are 20 years later and we are running up the barrier uh, against up against the barrier of the agile industrial complex which okay. is the Once certification you're gonna have to explain that uh, uh, yeah the uh, the agile industrial complex is the moral conundrum which whereby um we value people uh, and individuals interactions over processes and tools. But the only way we make money is by selling methodologies, tools, and certifications. That is a moral conundrum that we face. And uh, Martin Fowler popularized the term, the agile industrial complex. Dave Thomas may have been the first one to, to, to coin it. And, and so that's, that's a real barrier to the Agile movement having further influence and further credibility. Another one is Agile sectarianism, which is Agile values can only be realized and achieved if they are implemented using my methodology, my association, right. my that, team. And that part's just stupid. Well, it's driven by that <laughs> conflict of interest around the economic model and yeah. my need to for validation of my own contribution to the okay. corpus. So there's a certain, um, the, the neurological, uh, the neuroleadership model popularized the SCARP acronym. And um, I have to look it up every time. I don't even remember, but one of the words there is- okay, I don't even know what you're talking about. So it's- So totally like harsh. status, status is what motivates a lot of thought leaders. Okay, yeah. And, and so that that's what I was just going to say what you're talking about there is more ego driven, but I want to go back to that industrial complex thing for a minute because I don't understand. I understand how the agile industrial complex is a problem for the thought leaders that created the stuff and forgot to put in their card so they could get like a dollar out of the bin every time somebody got certified. <laughs> but I don't understand how that's a problem for people like me or people that are taking my classes. We're all fine with it. Like we, people get certified, they like it, they they learn some stuff, they go back and try it. What where's the, where's the illness? So, uh, the the conundrum comes when 
you start feeling as a new as a new beginner that the only way I can move forward in Agile is if I spend a lot of money on somebody else's stuff rather than reading a book, trying it out, making mistakes, growing along my okay. way. Like I have really, to get certified. I have to get the same certified. thing in project management. That's or, not. It's true. It's true. Uh, there's a, there's a project management industrial complex, which is currently being refactored. Um, that has always to been. To include. To include a sub agile industrial complex. Yeah, and 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 so and so that so there's the model right there, which is in the beginning there was the boost of all of these virtuous approaches that generated true um, seismic results. Yeah, and it runs up against the barrier of these questions about sectarianism and ego driven uh, approaches and money changing hands. Wait, this when, is all just the people at the top fussing. Uh, the people that they're learning how to do it, they don't care. I can tell you a lot of people are really upset. They got to pay two grand to get the certification. Oh, that, sure. But I can't imagine that like somebody who's been at it for like a month and a half is going to be like fighting like, you know, some of the lean people would about stuff. Or or how about this? Um, I want to hire a consultant. Um, and so I'm going to put out a, a, a posting for some agile support. And then boom, I get 200 emails from every one of these consultants who says that I'm your I'm your person. And now I'm left having to kind of figure out, good Lord, like, I mean, do, do we do, do we have like uh, trial by combat to determine which of these consultants is going to get, so there okay. there's, and what's, what's more, I mean, so you're like, that's just capitalism, except when we talk about having a higher order consciousness with teal organizations and empowered teams that can make decisions all they want. And here we're coming back with our wall street approach to okay. higher order morality. And, and, this, and so this is, but this is, don't you think that this is just an quote industry kind of growing up and realizing, Oh, we actually do like to have nice things in a house. <laughs> I guess maybe selling out's okay a little bit if we get these nice things and we don't have to be all and the so way we were is the rebound. That is the conceptual okay. rebound, which is if you use the, um, I'm going to sound really smart here, the Hegelian dialectic, <laughs> which is thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So the thesis is agile methods make you a better hippie. Um, the antithesis is, the antithesis is, except if you actually want to make a living and pay your mortgage. Now you right. got to sell your soul. And then the synthesis but you don't, is really though. It's not that, that extreme. Uh, depending on which dogmatic expert you talk to. I mean, people can get really judgy in our community. Yeah. Uh, there's man, I, I, I'm not saying, so I'm not I, saying that people fuel. don't get polarized by all of it. I guess what I'm saying is that while that may be conversations you and I get engaged in, that people that are trying to figure out how to do this stuff that have been at it for a year or three or four years, they probably don't waste a lot of time worrying about that. They have other problems. Uh, I, uh, how to get the team to deliver. Uh, so my only concern about you know the rank and file um, technologist, um, tester, engineer is this barrier to entry that in order for me to be okay. a thriving contributing member of an agile team, I've got to pay two grand and I've got to, in order to cross swords with a consultant who's out for my job. 
Okay. Um, and and let's face it, there are consultants that are yeah. um, wanting to insert There's always bad actors. Yeah. And that's and and so that's how I reconcile it. Is I say that um, that that's the that's we in order to scale agility at an industrial scale, yeah, to impact an entire industry, you've got to have an economic engine. And yeah. we're beginning to see now how we can start discussing what an economic engine looks like without the externalities and the side effects. Okay. So, so originally, this question started out with comments from Seema about. Well, so that was her point. She's like, in the beginning, the boost was yeah. these super enlightened, self-actualized ways of getting work done. Right. The barrier is we ran into all of these capitalistic side effects. Yeah. And the the rebound is to embrace both sides of that reality and begin to start thinking, how do we, how might we build an economic model that supports further development of agility across the world without cutting each other's throats along the way? How do we make the third album and maintain our integrity integrity without looking like we sold out? <laughs> it's exactly. It's the third album. <laughs> All right. Okay. So that, that get yeah, that's legitimately an issue. Um, okay. You had a so, question about. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I just did a workshop today and um, I probably shouldn't say it was for, but it was, it was impressive that I got to do this workshop for them. <laughs> I thought I felt impressive getting to do it. Um, I'm impressed by them, but there was a question that came up that I couldn't, I didn't have a good answer to. This is a and, world famous. Um, organization yeah yeah so um they have a pmo that is somewhat separate from the rest of the company in that that they struggle with getting the rest of the company to embrace them and the work that they do and then i guess the the easiest parallel for me to make is when you are a project manager and you walk into the gig and everybody's like yeah what do we need you for and you're like well i add value and they're like how and you have to try to convince people to let you be their project manager. And the, the thing about the job is that if you're a really good project manager, nobody knows what the hell you do all day anyway, because nothing catches on fire. And no one's like, hey, great job. I'm not letting anything catch on fire. They only pay attention to the guys that put out the fires that they probably started in the first place. So if a PMO is successful, they're doing really well with an organization that's adopting Agile. We were sort of having this conversation of if you're doing a great job, there's not going to be a ton of angst. Like you're helping them cope with that. You're helping them figure out how to bring these practices in and how to evolve their metrics and under understanding and help the executives, all this stuff. But they're like, but how do we get them to understand that we're valuable? And I'm like, I don't know. Like <laughs> total blank. I'm like, damn, like that's a really good question that I've never gotten to before. Because I'm always like fighting the other side well, of the so battle. They they completely they they weren't listening to you. No, you they were. We were. I was listening to me too, and I didn't have a good answer either. <laughs> other other than well, what are you like? I'm going to show you what the absence of something as a demonstration of my performance. <clears throat> it's like a dr a dr company shines when stuff blows up and they get to fix it, but when everything's not blown up, it's like yeah, we pay a lot of money for that. Yeah. So your 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 Taoist is showing, which is you know the great leader is the one who is never yes given credit because it all happened right as it was supposed to happen. Um, so uh, 
yes, a highly successful PMO or, um, or center of excellence is going to be the one that can prevent problems before they happen. And there's always more pain to fix. Always. Yeah. And so I'm going to channel our friend, Mark Price Perry, who says, if you're Hi, a PMO. Mark, Mark you're very old. <laughs> you probably don't even know what we're saying anymore. He's probably so senile he can't be. He's, he's, he's hitting golf. That's what he's doing. <laughs> he, he's hitting his, he's hitting his uh, links um, and enjoying his uh, retirement. Uh, and Mark was the one, I think, who really challenged the entire PMO community yeah. 15 years ago to say, to say, stop it. Stop trying to sell your value and instead start asking, stop selling, start aligning, yeah. start asking what are the pain points that you are most worried about? Oh, don't worry about the ones that we solved last year. We solved them. Okay. We're yeah. an effective PMO. We're an effective COE and they're not going to keep, they're not going to happen anymore. But I know you're struggling with more pain because if you weren't, then you're probably not doing a good job of challenging the organization. So as a senior leader, what's keeping you? And if you're not up at night as a senior leader, then you're probably not challenging yourself and your organization to meet the next existential threat because we all just went through one in 2020. There's right. one coming. Okay. So. There's always some other pain. Stop selling your PMO and start asking the problems that they're facing and they want to be solved and become the pain management office and ask them what their pain is. And then, you know, then finally, they might start listening because you're reframing everything you do through their lens. Okay. So we're kind of a little bit maybe at odds here because part of what Ooh. I was saying is you have to find a way to demonstrate value that you're providing. Right. But if the value is the absence of pain, then that is the part that I'm like, yeah, that I, you got to find something that you fix. Like yeah. There's got to be something. But, but what I'm also hearing is if you're not in pain, dude, you're not freaking paying attention. There's something wrong in there. Go find the damn thing, which can be very concerning because when I was a consultant working for a big consulting agency, it was you grab onto that carpet and if there's <laughs> not ticks in there, you pull them out of your pocket and put them in the carpet. Yes. Find the reason. That, goes back to the, that goes back to the externalities and the bad yeah. actors and the, yeah. the, um, the kind of the toxic motivations. Uh, there's good money in problems. Right. Money and letting that problem linger. So it's yes and yes, you do a good job by preventing problems, but uh, hopefully those problems were identified as super painful and relevant to spending money in the beginning. Then you solve them, you get credit, and then you move on to the next set of painful problems. So if you're good at your job as a PMO, you should never be done. Okay. Okay. So I want to draw a parallel here to, you know, Troy Lightfoot? You've probably met Troy before. Troy's a coach, and we, we were talking one time, somebody asked in class, we were doing a class together, what happens when the team gets to a state where they're performing? They're delivering consistently, everything's going fine, then what do you do? And Troy told a story about how he worked with a team that got to a consistently performing state, and the new problem they found wasn't actually, I mean, not on the surface level, it wasn't a problem, but they realized that as individual employees, they were not growing their skills. And they would be more valuable to the company 
if they devoted some time to that. So maybe the thing is, and, and that became a very healthy thing. They blocked out time in each sprint to do that. Just like, you know, Google used to have the design days and things like that. So maybe if you get to the place where you've solved the thing that was broken, you find ways to make things brighter and shinier than they are. Yeah, uh, I. Uh, this is where the fifth stage of the Tuckman model is one that has always bothered me. So we've heard of uh, forming. I don't have fine, la, 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 I don't have a fifth stage. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, forming, storming, norming, performing, and then adjourning, yeah. which is to say um, you go off into, you ride off into the sunset. Mission accomplished. Good. Back into the resource pool with you. Yeah. Um, no. Um, uh, if you're not growing, you're dying. Yes. I mean, it's a fundamental law of, of physics and in life. Um, and, and so there's always, there's always a space for, for growth. Now, maybe you're not delivering a thousand bugs anymore. Maybe right. you're not yelling at each other and calling each other names that would make your mom blush uh, anymore. But that doesn't mean that you're done. And, and so I agree with you. I agree that there's always an opportunity for you to start thinking about how can how can I start going to that next level? Yeah. On a personal level. And, um, and that's uh, arguably, that's what, um, that's what Lelou's reinventing organizations was about was, okay, we're a healthy organization. We're performing. And now what would it look like to achieve self-actualization at the office? And let's have a community conversation about that. And all of a sudden now you look forward to work. <clears throat> yeah. Imagine that. I feel bad for the people that don't. I always look forward to work, so I feel bad for the people that don't. Um, but yeah, that would be a drag. Um, okay. Uh, repeat We're your back. question. I'm going to. I'm just going to tell the people that are watching, you don't know this happened. We just had a little technical issue. We got <laughs> disconnected. We're reconnected. We're back. We're going to do one more question. I'm going to shut it down. So, Jesse, thank you for coming back. Yes. Uh, question that we were in the middle of, which we're going to start over, because it, it's iterative, is in this book, which is chock full of really great stuff and great advice for people. I'm curious about, and I'm going to ask it slightly differently. What is the thing in this book that is that you're like super proud of, and you're like that? That's the thing. That's all out of my head. All me. I'm super proud of that. That thing. I want everybody to see that thing. What is it? Um, I, I I have to go back to the core model. Uh, okay. The and the core model, uh, the boost, the barrier, and the rebound. It came about as a result of going to a workshop on public speaking, uh, and and the, the the challenge to those who were attending was. Uh, it, to whatever your message is, capture it in a referential model of some kind, ideally one that can be drawn on the back of a napkin. And so immediately I started thinking of Simon Sinek um, and his golden circle. And I started thinking of uh, the urgent versus important grid. And I, and I said, you know, I've written a whole bunch of nonsense, like 50,000 words of nonsense. And I have kind of a consistent chapter structure, but nobody's going to remember this. 
And what if I, wow. and then you use Dude, the rule of three. That must have been kind of a dark moment for you, man. <laughs> the rule of threes. And I'm like, you know, so what is the pattern here? And, and it just, eventually it started to coalesce into that every journey to improvement starts with some kind of a jettison, some kind of a jump forward, like the first guitar lesson. Yeah. And then eventually you run into a barrier, which is I'm only going to be as good as I can reading the books and the guitar tab. I'm going to have to, I don't like it. I'm going to have to go to guitar center and actually get some lessons. And that's the rebound. And so uh, as we discussed earlier, it, it's helped me kind of rethink how the agile community has evolved. There was an initial yeah. golden era and then we went commercial and now I think there's an opportunity to see and define what's next. It's also about what, how I look at my career. Uh, so that, I was going to ask you, is this something you still find yourself working through in different areas as you advance yeah. in your career? It is. It is because uh, it's, it's very much along the lines of that Buddhist proverb that barrier is the way. The, mm -hmm. That whatever it is that's causing the friction is the means of your growth. And I think it's a human pattern where we get so annoyed and frustrated by all the ick in the world that sometimes we can get shut down by it and discouraged, yeah. give up, and or fight to avoid all of the icky stuff. And that's where that's where the gold is. The gold is in the mud. That's where the punk rock comes from. I mean, if everything was smooth and easy, we'd be living in elevators. Right? If you don't have friction, you don't get rock and roll. And that's where all the good stuff happens. That's, that's a good one. That's a good one. I think cool. uh, Sid Vicious would approve. <laughs> and you know what? Actually, two blocks right out my window is the Chelsea Hotel, where Sid had a bad night one time. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, dude, this was so I'm going to tell everybody one more time. This book, Untapped Agility, really good stuff. Jesse wrote it. Um, thank you on behalf of the people that this is going to help. For having written it. Go and to uh, go to untappedagility.com for free downloads, uh, sample chat, uh, sample excerpts, a whole bunch of freebies over there. Untappedagility.com. And also, actually, wait one second. I'm getting something. Hold on. Because I can't say this enough, but of all the people I get to talk to, Jesse's got absolutely the most badass swag when he creates stuff, including his own sharpies. But the book came with matches because it's untapped agility. So you can read the book and set things on fire. So, yeah, that was the, for the launch you. team. Uh, well, this has been awesome. Um, yeah, thanks, man. This is good catching up. Yeah. I look forward to next time. Me too. And Andy, you have weird shoes. <laughs>